We're at the bottom of the first page, one of the common interpretive mistakes of pastors and Bible teachers. And this is similar to sort of background mania, but just factual regurgitation, just regurgitating facts about, about stuff. Um, I, I had a friend at another seminary once, and he was telling me about his class in the Gospels and how, you know, it was learning all this stuff. And, you know, and I thought, you know, that's really interesting, you know, but it sounds like a constant, constant Holy Land tour. But are you really learning to read the text and engage the meaning and, 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 and drive that home for others? Let's look at an example of what I mean by factual regurgitation. For example, Proverbs 11.1. 1. Again, this kind of overlaps with a background mania. But Proverbs 11.1 1 says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are His delight. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are, in his, are His delight. Well, clearly, what this is talking about is People at that time had, had scales and weights. If you've ever been to, when I went to China as a missionary, you go in the market and anytime you buy some vegetables or whatever, they had, someone would have a little scale they'd hold up and they'd weigh it and they'd, you'd pay based on that. Or, or maybe it's also talking about weighing precious metals. And it's talking about, you know, rather than having the weight that says one kilo or whatever, it really is not one kilo and you're cheating people by having by having false weights. And so it's talking about honesty in business. And basically Proverbs 11.1 1, is about being honest in your work and in your business. Uh, now, most of us don't engage in, in business using weights and scales, but there are all kinds of ways to be dishonest in business today, whether it's checking in. Uh, if, you're, if you work somewhere and you clock in and you clock out, you know, people have your buddy clock you in five minutes before you get there, clock you out five minutes after you leave or things like that, or whether it's uh, if you're in a, a job where you're pretty much... Um, uh, on your own, uh, wasting your time, uh, not doing your job, but wasting your time on the internet or things like that. There are all kinds of ways to be dishonest uh, today as well. And those are, those are implications which flow from that original meaning. But when someone gets into factual regurgitation, you know, it goes, goes into uh, the details about how scales and weights were made in the first century and pictures of them and, you know, illustrate... You're like, yeah, yeah, but let's get to real. Let's get to the real issue, the real issue of the meaning. All those things about weights and scales. That's that's those are necessary cultural and historical issues to convey meaning because we we have to have actions and words to convey. But the the root issue of, of concern is honesty, and and so we can get really sidetracked. I've I've seen this. Um, you know, have all this stuff on fishing in the New Testament. It's fascinating. You know, the kinds of fish in Galilee, the kinds of nets, the drag net and the trammel net and the cast net. But if you get sidetracked focusing on all of that stuff, uh, then you're really missing the point oftentimes in a text and what's really being discussed. So am I focusing on the meaning or just the facts and the stuff in the text? Just repeating the stuff in the text does not communicate the meaning. Just repeating the, the stuff, the details oftentimes is not focusing and driving home the meaning. Another, the second page there, we have the problem of Mr. Inerrancy or Mr. Apologetics or Mr. Creationism or Mr. End Times. It's that, that there's often a passion. The pastor or the teacher has some legitimate passion that hijacks most sermons or most teaching. And so even though I think inerrancy, my goodness, I'm, I'm an inerrantist. I've written a section in the book on inerrancy. Uh, you know, explaining that's the view of Jesus, it's the view of the early church, it's the view historically of the church, it's the view of the scriptures themselves. I talk about, there's several sections on inerrancy you can look at there, you know. You, Jason laughs, you, know, you don't, you, you, or is it something? No. I, personal story, okay. Okay, okay, I didn't know if there was some, some issue with inerrancy going on. Yeah, <laughs> I always thought Oklahoma was a conservative place, but we have Mr. Creationism and Mr. Apologetics in our church. Okay, I got you. I got you. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, the you know, and, and it's where I've heard this analogy before. It's like it's like someone you know when you leave your computer. This doesn't happen as much anymore, but it used to. When you leave your computer, you come back. They'd always have a screensaver, whatever it is. You know, there's that little Windows thing bouncing around on the screen. That's how often. Ser- someone's sermon or teaching you're like you just wait long enough and then there it is it's bouncing like that <laughs> it's coming up you know if they go for 10 minutes it's going to be the issue that comes up and it, isn't it true that in that situation we are often blind to our faults there like you know we 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 are all of us can have tendencies towards those things 
And so it just, it just reminds me of the need we have for, for input from other brothers. And um, this is a bit of an anecdotal aside, but I went to hear a sermon of a, of a student at, at a church in Louisville. Um, went to go hear a student sermon, pastor preach, and it, it was not very good. And then I went back six months later, and it was very good. And I was like, what happened? And uh, I found out that this guy, every Sunday night, he would have men in his church who would grill him and who would give him really hard feedback. And he changed the way he preached. He, I was like, what a radical thought. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And the reality is most of us are going to preach the same way we preach now as we preach 20 years from now. And we won't, you know, we won't improve because we're unwilling. It's too painful to get the feedback. It's painful to have negative feedback. Um, if you're married, you probably have gotten negative feedback on your preaching from your wife if you've ever asked her. If she's honest, wives are usually willing to be honest. Um, but I, I honestly, in my own preaching and teaching, you know, I'm a, I have a PhD in New Testament, but I'm primarily in the classroom. I'm not, I'm not a preacher. I'm not, I don't see myself as gifted. That's not my gifting or my calling primarily, although I, I do love it and have a growing love for it. But I feel like only in the last year when I begin to open myself up to more criticism and say, tell me what I can do differently, you know, that I really begin to improve. You know, I was sort of stagnated and sort of a professorial preacher, just kind of read more of a reading, less challenging. And I, I'm, I feel like I'm like, it's very humbling. I'm like, I'm nearly 40 years old and I feel like I'm just beginning to learn to preach, you know, and part of it comes from, you know, and I've like you guys, Ted, pre I've been preaching, I've taken preaching classes, but opening myself up to someone saying, you know what you're really missing in your preaching is this. It's like, it's kind of painful, but it's been very helpful. So, but it's sort of a side note on the Mr. Inerrancy and Mr. Apologetics. We ourselves have tendencies towards, towards uh, narrowness and towards rehashing the same thing over and over, and, and, and we're probably going to be blind to that unless someone tells us. I will tell you, you can look at the book for, for further discussion. On There's lots of discussion on inerrancy and, and the appropriate way to approach Scripture and, and how to deal with various um, difficult texts and, and so on. Uh, I, won't, I won't go into that detail now. You can, you can check into that in the, in the book. Fitting the Grid, how this text must fit our theological system. Alistair Begg, I heard him tell a story once about a, a Baptist preacher in Scotland who, who was obsessed with baptism. And he was preaching on the text, Adam, where are you? You know, God's call to Adam. He said, well, we have three points sermon. First, about Adam. And secondly, where he was. And thirdly, a few words about baptism. You know, and, and there's, it's true, it's, it's true that, it, that, that we can, there's certain... We cert sometimes we can come from certain theological systems, and let me just pick on us, whether it's Baptistic or Reformed or Arminian or whatever it is, and we can, we can squeeze and squash and fit that grid. And I'll, I'll just speak personally on the, on the passage in Hebrews. I, I have a firm commitment to the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. I believe a Christian cannot lose their salvation. And yet I read Hebrews, and there are strong warnings and I want to convey the strength of that warning to the people. I don't want it to be like, oh, pastor, I'm so glad you told me why I didn't have to worry about that warning. You know, I know like that. Then it would be they'd be like, no, that's not the point of the warning is to wake you up. You're in danger. Be careful. Watch out. Right. So how do we keep how do we let those texts? We need to let those texts speak fully in their strength. Even as we, we hold and assess our theological commitments, I'm in no way waffling on, on the perseverance of the saints, but I, I, have to hold that, I have to hold that in one hand as I hold the strong warnings of Scripture in the other. I, I think they, they can be held together well. I'll give an endorsement. Tom Schreiner, I think there's a, you get download Southern Baptist Journal of Theology, a fantastic article where he talks about how we hold these two together, or his book, The Race Set Before Us, is a really good book on that. I, I see this... Uh, in, in the classes I teach, um, in, uh, in my Greek class, I use, in my Greek syntax class, I use a first John primer. We go, we, first thing we do in, in second semester Greek is we translate first John and we have a textbook by a, a, a professor at Westminster, a, a committed Presbyterian, Stephen Baugh. He's a great 
um, writer, a great author and scholar. But obviously, uh, as a Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterian, he's a, he's a five-point Calvinist, right? He's committed to the five points of Calvinism. And so in 1 John 1, 1, we start translating that and, and we're reading through it. And it's, he says, we proclaim, and translate verse 3, this is the Apostle John speaking. We proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And in his little textbook, he says, well, this is, this is John saying, not only we Jews have this, but we proclaim this also that you Gentiles may have this. And I asked the students, has anyone noticed a Jew-Gentile distinction in 1 John ever before? <laughs> and they're like, no, we haven't. I'm like, isn't that interesting? Why do you think Dr. Baugh sees a Jew-Gentile distinction in 1 John? And they're like, I don't know. Like, we'll find out. And we get on to chapter 2. And it says um, in chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation, right? The wrath bearer for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, if you're a five-point Calvinist and you hold the limited atonement, you can't say that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, right? That, that, that doesn't fit within the theological system. And so you have to say, well, he's saying he's not just, he's saying he's, he's, a, he's really propitiation for Jewish believers and for Gentile believers, Gentile believers being the, the whole world. Now, personally, I'm playing my cards on the table in that I'm a four-point Calvinist. I don't hold the limited atonement. So some of you can send me scans of John Owen's death of death and other things like that. That's fine if you're, if you're like that. But I, this is a case where I think we have to, we have to, you know, we have to say, you know, we have to be careful. There are other ways to explain this text within the five-point Calvinism. Someone's committed to that. and they, but, but we have to be careful that we don't just be like, well, that text can't say that because I believe this. <laughs> you know, what, what's the ultimate authority? Is the text or the creed the ultimate authority? So we have to be very, very careful about that, right? We don't want to be like, we recognize this and we see it in cults. We're like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses. We can't believe you. You read the Gospel of John chapter 1 and you say that it doesn't say Jesus is divine. It's so obvious that it does, right? And, 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 and it does, you know. And they're, they're, they, they take a text and they'll twist it to fit their theological groove. We want to be careful that we don't do the same thing. We want to be careful that we, that we really hear the text in their strength. Um, one, one, one thing I've seen happening with this recently a little bit is a movement called the Biblical Theology Movement, and it has many good things to it. Uh, or sometimes it's called the Redemptive Historical Movement um, or the Meta Narrative Approach to Scripture. Uh, there's various ways that it's, it's, it's used, and, and a, a typical of this is Graham Goldsworthy. And Graham Goldsworthy does many good things. But if you read Graham Goldsworthy, he sees kingdom everywhere. Like, there's kingdom under every bush in the Old Testament. And so you have to ask, is, are you taking kingdom and you're, you're, you're reading it into, maybe, maybe the scripture has Old Covenant, New Covenant, Law, Gospel, uh, uh, Promise, Fulfillment. Maybe there are all kinds of, it. Maybe, maybe you should not just absolutize one metaphor of kingdom, but let, let the nuances of these other meta, metaphors and categories come out. And, and one danger of just absolutizing one picture of that is you do miss the nuances of Scripture, just an illustration of this. And this is a good resource. I've recommended this to many people. But anyone have kids with the big picture story Bible? Anyone have that? Okay, it's a, big, it's a story Bible that's built around this kingdom approach. And, it, you know, each, each section is about God's people and God's place and God's, God's rules and... and um, it, and it, it's very Christocentric. It builds to Christ. It's published by Crossway. It's a real, it's a great thing. But in absolutizing kingdom and this this big picture, it misses the nuances. And even my four-year-old daughter, when I was reading to her the story of the conquering of Jericho, it, you know, when we finished, she goes, "What about the lady?" They left the story of Rahab completely out of that, out of the conquering of Jericho, you know. And here's my four-year-old daughter who's like, "I'd like if a lady was in that story, you know, in the lady. I know that story." They're like, yeah, they left Rahab out because they were focusing so much on trying to abs find kingdom in that and, and absolutize that metaphor that they missed the beauty and the nuances 
of the actual story of the text, I think. That's one of the, one of the dangers. Okay, one, just one of the dangers of, of absolutizing a metaphor or, or a theological category. We always, I was speaking a little bit with, um, with John on the, on the drive from Oklahoma City, and he was telling me about a healthy relationship he had had with, uh, with someone from a different theological tradition in the past and how helpful it is to just have someone who will challenge and discuss things with you and ask you questions so you can't just, you'd be like, well, let me think about that, you know? So you're not just surrounded by people who think exactly like you. Be challenged and think, how, how can I, how can I um, faithfully do this? And I would say that going back to the example of the once saved, always saved, is that many traditional Southern Baptists have avoid, avoided preaching the warning passages and just given false assurance to people so that people who made a decision when they were seven think, once saved, always saved, and they, they can live however they want rather than hearing the warnings of Scripture, which would be like, if, if, you, if you, <laughs> your tree is known by its fruits, and if you have no fruit, then you're demonstrating that you're not a tree that, that, that's true, that Christ has planted and it's cultivating. And so, so failing to let those scriptures speak in their strength results in, 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 in all kind of distortions. Okay, another problem in preaching and teaching is to become the Pope of the text or translation, right? I recently was talking with a pastor, and he told me, he said, yeah, I have one of the translators of the ESV in my, in my congregation. <clears throat> he said, I never hesitate to correct the translation, though, when I need to. I was like, oh. Okay, <laughs> and uh, I think that that is a dangerous thing to do. I think it's a dangerous thing to be correcting English translations from the pulpit regularly, uh, but for several reasons. One, I think it under it undermines the translations we have. We have we have never in the history of the world have we had more excellent translations, and then we have now in the English language. We have excellent translations. Across a whole spectrum, we have usually when we talk about translation, and there's a section on this in, in the in the book. But you, there's a there's a, a continuum. You have translations that are called functionally equivalent, and you have translations that are formally equivalent. And another way to think of that is word for word and dynamic. These are these are kind of interchangeable. Sometimes they're called dynamically equivalent or functionally equivalent. And sometimes they're called word for word or formal. And we have a huge spectrum. We have we have the whole range on that. We have the NASB over here on the far right side. Over here, we have, you know, kind of even over off the grid, we have the message, which is more of a paraphrase. I mean, you have paraphrase. Paraphrases are kind of off the grid because they're more idiosyncratic, usually done by one person and not a translation committee. But you have the, the New Living Translation, the CEV, all these kinds of things. You have Holman Christian Standard Bible. You have the NIV. You have the... RSV and NRSV and you know we could talk about debates about some issues of translation in some of these but we have dozens of English translations and and most of them unless they're done by a cult or something they're generally reliable now they have different purposes right when I when my neighbor I had a neighbor who was completely non-christian background grew up in Utah as a secular person knew nothing Gave him a Bible. I gave him a New Living Translation. Very readable, understandable. You know, if you're going to do a Bible study, we'll put the ESV up here. If you're going to do a Bible study with verse-for-verse -verse Bible study with a bunch of rigorous theological college students at OBU or something like that, you might choose more of the ESV, something more word for it. But you, there are all kinds of... Uh, we talked. I was talking with someone about in our in our church. We've chosen the NIV as a pew Bible because it's more. It's kind of a middle of the road. It's more the language of the people. It's not as stilted as the ESV or the NASB in terms of its wording. But they're, they're, we recognize these as complementary, and that's why I think from the pulpit, rather than becoming the Pope of the translation, you know, this translation's wrong, or here I corrected here, we can inform people how to correctly use translations. And so let me let me give an example of this. For example, Philemon, verse 6. Philemon's only one chapter. So verse 6 in Philemon NIV is a bad translation. Okay? It's, it's, very, it's, it's uh, easily understood, misunderstood. I'm talking very frankly here in a way that I, I wouldn't in a, um, in, a, in a sermon. I wouldn't speak this frankly. So in Philemon 1.6 it says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Now, to any evangelical, 
active in sharing your faith means evangelizing. I mean, does any? I mean, that's what it means. But the word here is koinonia. It's the word for partnership. It never has any evangelistic connotations at all. And, and, and in fact, the book is quite clearly, if you look at the book, the book is about Philemon welcoming back Onesimus and about what it means to be brothers in Christ, though one is a slave and one is the owner of forgiving. It has nothing to do about evangelism either. It has about partnership, koinonia. And so this is a place where the NIV has made a poor decision, hasn't it, to translate that. But if I were preaching, but I preach the NIV. So what I, what I would do if I were preaching this text, I would read it. It's a pivotal verse, too, for the whole, whole book. I mean, you have to deal with it. It's kind of a theme verse for the book. I would say, you know, this, this is a verse that it's talking about... Um, Let's see that. I was looking at the Holman Christian. Oh, this is the ESV. It says, I pray that the sharing of your faith. Does anyone have the Holman Christian standard? Because I think it, would you mind reading it for us? Yeah, participation in the faith. That's better. That's a, that's a better translation. So what, what I would say with this is I would say, you know, this is talking about sharing your faith. I said, when we hear active in sharing, we often think of evangelism, don't we? But really this verse is talking about sharing the commonality of brothers and sisters in Christ. It thinks it's talking about Philemon and Onesimus sharing together what it means to be brothers in the same fellowship. I said, you know, one translation that maybe brings that up more clearly, I would choose, there's several that do it, I'd say, is, is the Holman Christian Standard. And then I would read that so they would see it's not like, all oh, pastors, pope of the translations. It's like, oh, look, this is how we use other translations. It's helpful to read two or three different translations. And when there's a significant uh, difference in understanding, we have to ask more, don't we, about it. And, and, and you could even note, I mean, a revision of the NIV is coming out, and that's a verse that they're fixing because it's been misunderstood, right? They, they're, they're changing. That's one of the verses they changed in the debated TNIV version. I'm sure it will come through in the, in the new revision as well because, it, because it's misunderstood because of the way evangelicals speak. But I, I th- that's the way I think it's, it's best done is, is, and it can be, I tell my Greek students, you know, and I, I love and teach Greek. I mean, Greek is, is my thing. I say Greek in your sermon should be like underwear. It should never be visible, right? It should only provide support, right? So you're, you're, you're st- I, I'm really a big, I do not like people throwing Greek around. And usually when they do it, especially if they're citing a commentary or something, they will sometimes make mistakes or it's a power play. Oh, pastor study, just throwing Greek around. Like I, I, I you know, don't want to step on anyone's toes if you do that, but I, 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 I love Greek, and I, I try hard not to do that. It can be, there can be a place to do, like Philemon, a, a legitimate way to do this would be the word that's translated there, sharing, really is talking about, part, there's no need to say the word, I guess people know koinonia, you might say it, you guys know have probably heard the word koinonia, it's about sharing, sharing partnership in the faith. So, limited way like that, but once you start talking about, now this is a participle, and this is air, you know, I, I just really... Really do not do not think that's a, and 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 to and I also think it's a good idea to skim over non-important translation differences. Like there was one in in the text I preached last night that I think that, again I was preaching from the NIV, but I think they did a they did make a mistake in this translation. In three eight it says, "Do not harden your hearts," and in the Greek it just says, "As in the rebellion," but the NIV says, "As you did in the rebellion." So it puts the current hearers. Back in the historical setting of of uh, of of Masa Meribah, but the author doesn't actually do that. He just says, "Don't harden your hearts," as in the rebellion. And some some translations, more, more probably more rightly, add in as they did in the rebellion. And so, but that that that, that wasn't significant enough to sidetrack issues. So just just um, don't. I think it's important to to not get sidetracked on that kind of stuff. Under the under the text translation issues, another issue that I think um, so so I do think I do think as well it's really wrong for personally for someone to say this is the only and the best translation. We call them the ESVites. I don't know if you we have a few of them around at our church. You know where they 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 they're part of the Mark Driscoll, you know John Piper. They're like the ESV. Why don't you use the ESV? And we're like, we have a position paper on why we don't use the ESV, and this is why. And so we give it to them. But, but to absolutize and say, this is the only translation is a mistake. Okay, I think that is a mistake. It doesn't recognize the reality of the good of multiple translations. 
But there's also, underneath the text translation issues, there are also the problem of word study fallacies, and we'll mention those uh, a little bit because you, see, you hear these sometimes popularly in preaching and teaching. I'll tell you one that... Uh, that yeah, brother? Just a quick question. Um, going back to the former point, what would be maybe your suggestion to politely talk to those who are the King James only people? Oh, that's a, do you have those in Oklahoma? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, well, yeah, um, we have, we, yeah, that's, in fact, in my hermeneutics class in Kentucky, traditionally I've used a book um, by James White called The King James Only Controversy. And uh, it's an excellent book. It's well written. It's endorsed by D.A. Carson and other people. says this is the most reasoned and sensitive and accurate very, very good. The King James Only Controversy by James White, and uh, I mean, I think that um, you know, doing a do, using that as a basis for a little Sunday night study. Say, let's look at this, and the evidence is so overwhelmingly against King James Only views. Um, the King James Only view is is a circular argument. You're changing the Bible, which assumes the KJV is the standard. For everything else, it's like, well, what the real standard is the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, you know, the, the and 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 the you know the evidence is quite clear that the 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 translators of the KJV had only a handful of, of manuscripts for the Greek text that 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 they were basing, you know, like they had maybe seven, I think. If you if you go to Bible.org, there's a great one two page, you know, like. 2,000-word download about the King James-only stuff by um, a Greek scholar at Dallas, um, Wallace, where he, he goes through the manuscript evidence and things like that. But, you know, they were, they were basing on very limited manuscripts. They, in, their, in the preface, they recognized the provisional nature of what they were doing and how it would be surpassed. The people who translated it, you know, um, it included the... One thing that if you just want to... This is kind of mean... But, like, if people are like, yeah, I'm the KJV, like, well, did you know the KJV was originally translated with the Apocrypha? It was inclu- the Apocrypha was included in the translation. Do you think that's part of the Bible? Like, you know, uh, obviously they don't. So it wasn't until much later that it wasn't included. You know, and so that, at least that will get them thinking. Right. You know, say, well, no, I don't think the Apocrypha is part of the Bible. Why don't I? You know, um, so, yeah, it... it uh, but the nice thing about this book, I mean, the people, the people who are really very adamantly KJV, like Peter Ruckman and Gail Ripplinger, if you've ever run into their stuff, I mean, they are extremely hateful. I mean, they are just, just mean-spirited, and they like, they, like, condemn Carson. I mean, all the people that we would respect as scholars, uh, uh, Gail Ripplinger just rips them, and, and she, she misquotes them and misspells their names. And, and then, and then, and then she, she was corrected on this, and she's like, well, they deserve to have letters dropped out of their name because they're dropping words out of the Bible. You know, like that kind of just kind of popular sort of fire them up and beat people. I mean, the, but the nice thing about this book is he doesn't fight back in that way. He just is like, this is what they say. And he just quotes it, and you're like, are you serious? You know, and then he's like, this seems unsubstantiated. You know, he's just very, very calm and like, and just presents the evidence. And I've, students, what I do for one of my classes, I have the students read this, and I have them create a two-page reference sheet. I said, someday in the future, you're probably going to run into somebody who has this view, and I don't want you to have to read the book again. You're your own research student. Create a two-page reference sheet with talking points. So when you, when you see the person, you say, I have a file on that. Let me look at it. I'll get back to you tomorrow. You review your note, talking points, and then you get back and say, this is why we have this view. You know, and so because you, you, none of us can maintain unless we're, I mean, can maintain everything in our minds. But create a. Someone had a question here. Yeah, just a comment, and, and it's it's kind of run into two or three things here that you talk about, with, especially with King James Only. Yeah. Just an observation I have that we, I think we should teach a posture uh, when we talk about preaching and yeah. interpretations and um, which is best, which is worst, and mm. how we. Yeah. That says I, I should assume my brother is trying yeah. to do the right thing, not the yeah. wrong thing. Yeah. I remember because uh, I, I was really, really influenced by Piper yeah. early on in my pastoral ministry, and still read read him a lot and have huge respect. And when he uh, when he said the ESV was good, I bought one. I'm like, yeah. Okay, that's great. But when he said that he was re 
memorizing all of his memory verses in the ESV, I Yeah, well, not for him actually, because he, well, because he memorized the Bible in the RSV, and the R. I've heard him talk about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it it makes it like this is the only thing. Yeah, I. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 and I've, I've heard Piper say the worst thing for expositional, the worst thing for expositional preaching in the history of the church is the NIV, you know, and you're like, really? Yeah, is that, you know, that's a strong statement. I've also heard him say, just, just what I was saying with that, I've heard him say that my heart Bible, the Bible I memorized the scriptures in in college was the RSV. The ESV is just a slight revision of the RSV. So you think about I mean, in many ways, it must it must be desirable in his heart language because that's that's the Bible he memorized in many ways, really, already. But I, yeah, he has a commitment to he has a strong philosophical commitment to a formally equivalent translation. But yeah, there's a need to be charitable and like you would think, for example, the stuff that's said about the TNIV, the the, the debated gender neutral trend. You would think if you opened it up, it would begin with a prayer to the Mother Goddess, and you'd think that they would cut out the sections about women submitting to their husbands and stuff. But it's not. There's no no female pronouns for God at all. It's, all it is is saying when it when it when it's referring to a specific a gen, you know a, a generic he, should we make that them or he or she? And you know those are legitimately debated issues. It's not. In other words, that they didn't. They, the people who, in fact, the people who were on the head, Doug Moo was the head of the translation committee, who's a complementarian who who holds openly to to uh, traditional. Uh, roles of men and women as understood in scripture you know so you're like accusing i mean it's kind of crazy to accuse him of of being um you know subversive he so so you're right being charitable saying i don't see it that way i don't think we need to do that but i don't think you're trying to like subversively bring in feminism through what you're doing you know to have some um, charity in that discussion i think yeah jason <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, John Piper is a hero, hero of the faith. There's no doubt. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Giveaway. Well, I, I have to confess, I have an article that I need to send you called "Why the English Standard Version Should Not Be the Standard English Version." Has anyone ever read this? It's really very good. It's written by Mark Strauss at Bethel, and he's like, "Hey, this is a good translation." Could be a lot better. Let's look at some places. And he goes through hundreds of examples of poor wording uh, and stilted wording, completely unnatural English wording. He's like, look at this over and over again. No one speaks like this. These words don't mean this anymore. Look at this. This has a this has a strange. It's talking about two women grinding together. He's like, you know, if you if you teach college students, you understand this. This is not language that you can use in modern. You know, so you have all these. Uh, and, and it's it's a very it's a humorously written, but after you read it, you have to say, you know, the ESV is not a perfect translation. Uh, so, kind of the hype about it is, is you'd say it's a good translation. In fact, it's probably the best formally equivalent translation in the English language. I would definitely rank it above the New American Standard. But but um, but there, um, you know, that doesn't mean it's it's perfect. Okay, the word study fallacies. Had a student come to me with a with a. A printout of uh, of a worship conference by a large denomination many of us are affiliated with, and uh, and it said uh, uh, it said you know uh, the word for worship uh, is uh, proskuneo. That's true, right? That's true. And he says this is broken up into two parts: pros, which means to or toward. Uh, Realize this is not true, okay? And the word kuneo, which means dog, okay? And he says it. So when we worship, we approach God like a dog, uh, you know, licking his hand and stuff. And you're like, like, are you serious? So several problems here. One, this is this is engaging in etymology. Etymology is the history of words. Two, this is bad etymology, right? This is not not correct. The word for dog in Greek is kuon. Okay, there's some similar letters there. But, but that's, this is the word that means to kiss, okay? 
kuneo. And, and traditionally, probably hundreds of years before this, the word originally had to someone where they would approach, you know, a, an idol or, or a temple or a ruler and they would bow and they would kiss the ground or their garment of the person or something. But over time, it lost that literal sense and it came to mean basically what we mean by worship, right? So there's a couple of fallacies going on here. The fallacy is thinking, if I go back 500 years ago and I find out how this word's origin is, then I'll understand its meaning. That's a fallacy, right? Words mean what they mean how you use them now, not what they meant 500 years ago. You can see this in the King James Version, like you look at in, in the book of James. If a man comes into your, your you know, in chapter 2, man comes into your assembly wearing gay clothing, okay? The word gay has changed meaning, right, from the time that the King James Version was, was written. And we, we, that, would, that would be seriously misunderstood if, if used now. And, and um, we think the English language is, is full of it. it. You know, like I tell people, I just sometimes I illustrate this. Look, let's do it in our own language. The word dandelion. I'm sure when you guys are rooting out dandelions in your yard, do you have dandelions in Oklahoma or not? Okay. The, the, I'm sure that all of you are thinking of the origin of this from the, from the French and the Latin, Don de Leon. The teeth of lion, the teeth of the lion, and you're thinking of ripping those incisors of that lioness plant from your. No, you're not. You're thinking dandelion. It's a little yellow weed in my in my yard, right? Uh, or when you think of the word lasagna, you're thinking. I'm sure that all of you are thinking of the Latin lasanon, which is a chamber potty, a little toilet uh, that you. So you you know whip one, another one up from the toilet for us today. You know you you you, you understand this word means a, a dish uh, of. Of pasta, they're usually with red sauce. You know, it doesn't, no one is thinking about the origin of that. Just like, and the same thing happens with in the New Testament, where uh, one of the passages where um, it's debated in relation to this is uh, similar to what we were reading in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 and, and in Ephesians 5. It talks about the man being the head of the woman. And the question is, does the word head convey sense of authority? You know, Christ. God is ahead of Christ, and the man is ahead. And some 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 people have said, "Oh, the word kephale means can just means source, just like that Adam was the source of Eve. Eve came from his rib." But if you look at the the, the textual evidence they used to support that, they're using works written hundreds of years prior to the New Testament that are not contemporaneous with the literature, and that and that have very clear qualifiers like the head of the river, you know, the source of the river, in the same way we would use something like that. So you, 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 the the reality, the word, one of the major word study fallacies is the etymological fallacy, and again, etymology is just is just studying the history of a word. It's the fallacy in thinking that no, if I knew the history of the origin of this word, I have deeper insight into its meaning. The deep insight into a meaning of a word is knowing how it's used in the time and context in which it's actually used. Um, then another major word study fallacy that comes out sometimes is um, illegitimate totality transfer. Okay, that, that sounds kind of... I have to think about how to spell that here. Ill... Oops. Is that right? Illegitimate. Is that right? Illegitimate? Yeah. Do I need an I there? Yeah, there we go. Illegitimate totality transfer. Okay, illegitimate totality transfer. And this is the idea that a, a word means the totality of what it could mean in every instance. We hear this all the time. Famous pastors. Here we have the word so-and-so. This means, and then they read like five different things. You know, it means uh, to be a ship captain. It means to be the head of this. It means to be the head of, it means this. And you're like, does it really mean all those right there? Like it, it'd be like me saying, this is a cell phone. A cell is a small room where we keep people in prison. A cell is, a pro, is protoplasm in its smallest form in the body. A cell is a kind of a shorthand for a digital transmission. You know, be like, well, well, isn't it just that last one, right? It's not all three, three of those. And so this is where you have people who read off the totality of what a word could mean, saying, you know, this is, it's, this is the error that sometimes is found in the Amplified Bible, where the Amplified Bible will give you like six different translations but the hard work of translation is to say, well, which one does the context... We're, all words have a range of meaning. 
what is the meaning of that word here? What is the meaning of that word in this context? And and then and then to then we don't rather than giving people all the possibilities of word, we want to focus on the meaning of the word and then drive home that that meaning that's given from the context. One of the best places where these kind of word studies are discussed is in D. A. Carson's book Exegetical Fallacies, and uh, he he has a section on word study fallacies, and he talks about the danger of them and. And, uh, you know, and how many, like, for example, and sometimes true doctrines can be emphasized. Again, it's the right doctrine without the proper basis. So someone will say, well, this is agape. Agape is a unique divine kind of love. Well, there's no doubt if you read through Scripture, God's love is unique. It's self-giving. It's, it's, it's not deserved. But the word agape and agapao does not necessarily in and of itself convey that idea, right? That's why in the Septuagint it says, Amnon agape Tamar, and he raped her, right? That there's no divine love in the word agape in that passage. It's, it's, it's the word love. It really, it really very well corresponds to the English word love. I love my wife. I love ice cream. He loves wickedness. You know, depending on the context, it can mean many different things. And so we just want to be very careful that we, we don't try to base our authority on a false... Um, word study, you know, so this is what it means. Well, is that from the context or is that from the word itself or anything? And so, and, and if I, ha- I, um, I teach Greek, you know, at the seminary, so we, we work on some of this stuff. And uh, at the end of the second semester, I had a student, a female student. She wasn't the best student in the class. And we were leaving at, at the last day. And, and she said, you know, I heard this guy teaching the other day and she mentioned some I forget what the exact teaching was but it was some false word study idea she said I just heard that and I said that's just a bunch of bunk and I thought to myself well this class has been successful you know in the sense that she has this detection she might not end up being the best Greek student but she has this detection system where she has enough linguistic understanding to understand that's not true you know or that is like she's developed a little bit of an intuitive linguistic sense from the stuff that we've been working on which was good um, that was a lot on words on uh, translations and word study fallacies. Does anyone have have any thoughts or questions on that? Yeah. Um, A.T. Robertson's word pictures. Yeah. How does that fit in with this? Because I, I yeah. love word. Yeah, pictures. word pictures has many helpful insights into the Greek. Now, Robertson was writing in the um, in the 1930s, and at that time period. Um, there was a tendency to try to do a lot of theology from um, uh, from individual words rather than seeing the value of larger discourse units, like in terms of, in other words, phrases and sentences. So I think if there is a danger with him, and sometimes also he, he will give you etymology, but he gives it to you more as a memory device to help. He's thinking of students. And helping them remember what words mean. He's like, look, this is like, uh, this originally was this, and you know these words, so you'll remember this. So he, he's not, I don't think he would, you know, Robertson was a master of the Greek text, but he also was, he was a, he was a product of, I mean, we're all sort of in a certain time period, and we're blind to sort of the, the, the thing that we're in. So the same time that Robertson is writing the, the dictionaries and the famous TDNT, you know, the Kittle Dictionary, the big 10-volume blue thing, and that also has some of the, where it will take one particular word and will try to infuse a whole lot of theological meaning in that word as opposed to saying, well, really, the, the, we, we really need to look at larger context too. So, in other words, I think that sometimes you'll find Robertson reaching, asserting right conclusions, but maybe not properly bound, explaining them in the, in the context. And he, he was certainly a master of... Um, of Greek usage and many helpful insights in that word word pictures is is a is a good though it's dated it's a very good resource. Yeah, good question. Uh, probably for word people, I have had students pastors ask me. I can I can only you know I got a book allowance now. What should I buy for word studies? What's the most helpful thing for word studies? And I'll say, well, probably the New International Dictionary for New Testament Theology. Uh, New International. This for the New Testament. Okay, uh, would be the best thing. N-I, it's abbreviated N I D N T T. 
and it's like a four-volume work. And the nice thing about it, it's done by careful scholars. Um, it's written so that it's accessible to people who don't know Greek very well. It has, you know, English index and lots of, and it, it, but, it's, but it's nuanced and careful. It doesn't engage in, in, in exegetical fallacy. So it's, it's a good resource. New International Dictionary for New Testament Theology. And there's also one for the Old Testament, the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology. And if you want one volume that's 30 bucks, Mounts' Dictionary of Expository Words is probably one of the more reliable ones. Mounts's, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but Mounts' Dictionary of something. I, if you look, search Mounts, William Mounts Dictionary Words, something like it's a one volume for both the Old and New Testament. And it's, again, scholarly, reliable, accessible. So I would write, people sometimes will come and say, what about vines? What about this? I'll say, I recommend these above vines and or above, uh, there's some guy with a Greek name that K. Arthur really likes, Zodiac, Zodiades. I say, really, I really, I would trust these people over that any day. Mounts and and this Colin Brown. These are really well done works. Um, so people can, it, 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 people there's something about the human ten, people like word studies, right? They, and they're they're drawn to thinking, oh, some new insight that I didn't have before. Or a picture, you know, people are drawn to, you know, a picture of a, you know, sea captain and people rowing and all that. But we want to be careful that they're actually what we're saying is actually grounded in the text. That we're saying things that are true, not just things that people want to hear. Um, okay. Anything else on word studies or dictionaries or stuff? There's a section on that in the book. What are some useful tools for studying the Bible? And I talk about word study tools and dictionary and, and study Bibles and things like that in there. Some useful tools. Also, there's never been a better time for electronic tools. I mean, it's amazing the kind of stuff out there now. Um, I use BibleWorks. I love BibleWorks. I think it's the best thing for PC, for especially doing original language stuff, Greek and Hebrew. Logos is also very good. If you have a Mac, Accordance is supposed to be the best for Mac for original language work. Um, Olive Tree software I have now on my on my uh, iPod. I have the Greek the Greek Bible, the Hebrew Bible, various English Bibles. It's all it's great because you always have it right here with you. And it's it's I mean I'll show, I can show it to you. But is I have the Greek text here, and then I can push this little button up here, and it puts whatever parallel English text I want right below if I want it. If I put my finger on any word, it opens up the dictionary entry for that word with the full parsing and everything. It's just like, wow, this is, this is amazing. What the, the ease of it. And it, it's amazing. Never in the history of the world have we had more tools and more ease, availability to study the biblical languages, and yet never have students been more resistant and lazy to doing it, you know? Uh, it's, you know, you look at what the previous generations accomplished. They were so hardworking. They didn't have any computers or anything. Okay, illustrations driving the sermon. I, my wife and I, when we were students, we worked at the guest house of the seminary. When I was a Ph.D. student, my job was to clean the toilets of the most famous preachers uh, who came to visit campus. So I thought that was a very good spiritual exercise for me. Uh, I cleaned the toilets of John Piper and Alistair Begg and uh, Adrian Rogers, uh, you know, uh, and and I, I feel like that was part of my spiritual formation. Was, it was you, We don't wash people's feet now because that makes us uncomfortable. But to clean people's bathrooms and bag up their sheets and everything is good, is good for your soul. And I did that for three years, my wife and I. And uh, it was interesting what you see in those years, too. You know, that people who are very famous, some of them are very godly and humble, and some of them, some of them are not. And um, But w- one of the... Um, People, because they're on, not on their guard, we're just the domestic help, right? They just let out their hair down and we'll see who they are when, when no one's watching. Um, and one of those people, also, I feel like I can say this because he's passed away now. He's a famous scholar. He was an absolute jerk um, to lots of people. And I, I never want to read his books. Like, I never have bought them. I'm like, I don't care what he says. I saw how he treated people. Um, and that's a warning to me, too. I'm like, I don't want to be like that. You know, I don't want to be like that. But the, um, we had someone stay at the guest house once. He was a, a famous denominational executive. And uh, I said the night before, I was just making a small talk. I was being friendly. I said, um, is your sermon ready for chapel tomorrow? You know, you all ready to go? He's like, well, I got all my illustrations. I got all my jokes. 
I just got to figure out what I'm going to do with the text. And I, I laughed because I thought he was joking. <laughs> but then the next day, it became clear as I was listening to preach, I'm like, he was telling the truth. He really, his sermon was just illustration after illustration and joke and one-liner after one-liner. And you could see he kind of liked getting the crowd going. I was like, he just doesn't have any content. It's just, it's just illustrations, illustrations, illustrations. And uh, there's the danger of that, especially if we think of an illustration. You can think about the tail wagging the dog. This is where you think this illustration will really move people. People will cry about this. In fact, I'm crying thinking about my own illustration. <laughs> you know, like there's, you, you, you got to say, that's not, like we want illustrations to flow out of the text. Not, not to be something that we, not to be, well, this, people love this story. I'm going to throw this in. Or this was a good joke. I'm just going to throw in a joke just to, you know. And so I just think um, there's just a need to be really critical about that. Herschel York, who teaches preaching at Southern, one thing I learned from him is, uh, and, you know, people may disagree about this, but he says illustrations should always be personal. So he's like, throw out the illustration books and have the text in your, in your mind and in your heart through the week. And then it'll be really personal because it's you, you know, it's your family. Or, but there's also the danger of that if we have one. This is, again, the danger of the, the screensaver. We need people to tell us, all your illustrations come from TV shows, <laughs> you know, or all your illustrations are about football, you know. And you like, and it's like, well, Jesus gave illustrations about women cooking, about men working outside, about economics. Jesus used illustrations from, like, that hit everybody. And so we need to aim, even as we're giving illustrations from our own life, to, to try to, to try to think, well, how we, we don't, what, what would single, if I always give illustrations about my kids, what about the single people here? What are they thinking? We're, 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 how is this going to hit them? But the main point here is just, is not letting, not letting the, the illustrations drive the sermon really, but that the illustrations flow out of the sermon and it can be really painful. It's like cutting a mole off or something when you, when you're like, this illustration's awesome. But it doesn't fit the text, so you go like you have to say. But I'm not going to use it because it doesn't serve the purpose. You know, cut it out, uh, and and maybe make a file of it or something. Uh, but don't don't feel don't let it drive the text. Initial reactions driving the sermon. So uh, and this overlaps with what we said before about superficial study. But I think Luther Luther has a really good quote about this. Luther uh, says this and take care when given instructions about studying. Take care that you do not grow weary. Or think that you've done enough when you've read, heard, or spoken the words of Scripture once or twice, and that you have complete, complete understanding. You will not be a particularly good theologian if you do that, for you will be like untimely fruit which falls to the ground before it is half ripe. And it's the recognition that sometimes our initial reaction and observations need to be corrected, and that uh, we're, we're, we only see partially. And um, the, the main teaching pastor in, in the church where I'm an elder um, He's a good example of this. He emails his sermon out to 10 or 15 guys Saturday and get, give me all the feedback, negative, positive. Give me more illustrations. Give me, give me, and, and he, he changes his sermon uh, from that feedback, you know, that is corrective. Uh, he's willing to take correction, uh, willing to, and, and he's obviously a great preacher anyway, a great Scott, he's a great student of Scripture, so he, he's already doing a really good work, but it's just that willingness to say, you know, I'm willing to bring others into the dialogue here, whether it's dead people I'm reading in commentaries or live people who look me in the face. I need, I need the community of Christ around me who will correct me, who will help me see things I didn't see, who will help me see that my initial reactions maybe are not, are not, the, are not seeing the text as, as I should. Maybe I'm blinded to, to what's going on here. Church needs driving the sermon. Again, this, is, this, this can overlap with sermonizing. It, obviously, we, there can be timely moments where we really need to bring... You know, let's say you come into a church and you're like, there's no understanding in this church of what it means to, to really live together sacrificially. Then doing, obviously, doing a topical series on that is important. But if you're, if you're constantly reacting, and especially if you're deciding people need to hear this, then you're really standing in the way of the text. And that's why I really think a book-by-book approach... It, it, not that it always has to be done that way, but it forces you to preach everything in the Bible, right? You're like, I wouldn't have chosen that text. Well, there are people in the pews who need to hear that text, right? And you're like, ooh, that text is, makes me feel uncomfortable to talk about that. Well, that's what you need to talk about, right? We have to. There's no excuse. Also, someone can't think, pastor's choosing that text because he's trying to step on my toes. You're like, no, that's the next text that we come to. You know, if it's stepping on your toes, it's because that, that's what the Word of God is doing. And... Um, 
I think I don't think I gave the example in here. I think I gave it yesterday. But when I, w- I was asked to preach in chapel at the seminary about six years ago, I haven't been asked again, so I don't know what that means. But the uh, uh, in John and and I thought, what I have one chance to preach here, maybe. <laughs> What, what am I going to say? I, th- I think people need to learn about humble service. That's what I'm uh, People need to learn about humble service. And so I chose John 13. But then when I started reading John 13, it was, it was clearly about the love of Christ more than it was about me humbly serving. That's part of it. And so that's where you have to say, even though I chose that text because I thought of a need of the community, I'm going to allow the text to dictate how I finally preach that. And, and that's where the power is in the meaning of the inspired meaning of the text. Okay, not respecting the old covenant, living under the old covenant, not respecting the old covenant, new covenant, right? The, the Bible is a book of progressive revelation, right? The Bible is a book of progressive revelation where earlier, some of the earlier laws in the scripture uh, are, are just foreshadow uh, the coming of Christ so that food laws and ceremonial regulations, we realize that these are no longer incumbent upon upon God's people. So, for example, in in Mark chapter 7, it says, Jesus declares all foods clean. Unfortunately, sometimes you find people who will pick up particular things within the old covenant structure, within the structure of ceremony or within the structure of certain regulations that, that separate God's people out. For example, food regulations, right? Why does God tell his people they can't eat pig flesh and they can't eat catfish and they can't, They can't wear a garment woven with two. Well, God was separating his people out from the other nations in the same way that if you put food in a Tupperware container and then you put it in a bunch of around a lot of rotten food, it it doesn't get rotten because it's protected. It's separated out from the other other food. And so we shouldn't, you know, but then some I've, I've run into people. I don't know if this is going on in Oklahoma, but in Kentucky, there's a lot of Christians who are drawn to some of the new organic food movements and other things. And, and not that there's anything bad in that, but, but I've run into a guy who claimed to me, you know, if you, if you eat food this way, which is the kind of way they eat it in the Old Testament, it's amazing your kids behave better. Your kid, I'm like, your kids, your kids behave bad because they're sinners, right? Like, you're, <laughs> the, the, there's, no secret, there's no secret maker's diet in the Old Testament. Like, if you don't eat catfish and you don't eat pig flesh and you, you cook your bread with grains that are sprouted, then then your kids will behave better. Now, granted, if you don't give your kids ices and chocolate, they're, they're, they'll not be as wound up. I mean, well, that everybody acknowledges don't give your kids a bunch of refined sugar. That's not good for them. But to, to somehow, that's, that's, that's not understanding the difference between anticipation and fulfillment, right? The, the, we, 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 we're not bound by the, the food regulations of the Old Testament. We need to distinguish what things anticipated and, and, and what things have have passed into the shadows now that the reality is here. Has anyone seen anything like that with food like me or not? A few of you? It's an intriguing thing. And it's a, if you think about it, I think many people are uncritical about it, but it can be a false gospel. It's like if you really, this is, if you do this, your life's, your life's good. You know, your kids behave. You know, in other words, your problem is not sin. Their problem is not sin, but it's, it's how you eat. There's a secret. If you, if you, it's sort of Gnostic in some ways. Yeah. I was gonna say, it's not just that. I mean, you can see that in church structures. I think anything that's pulled out and is elevated is some sort of everybody else missed this. This is the secret key. Yeah. Here's the key to unlocking the spiritual life. To unlocking how your church should function better. To unlocking how to get people to live right. Yeah. Not to just beat that, but they're uncharitable. Yeah. They assume bad on everyone else. Yeah. Without critically recognizing um, the, the the failures that are inherent in anyone's and recognizing that that it's there are issues of moral inconsequentials. If you eat organic food, if you eat bread with sprouted grain, if you eat whole milk if you whatever you that's cool i mean that's fine with me if you don't want to pasteurize your milk and all that and that's no problem but if you make it a moral issue an issue of this is this is really following god's word you know or this is this is the way to have a harmonious family no jesus declared all foods clean and and i'm going with that mark seven um yeah just yeah it's um it's interesting Interesting day we live in. 
moralism, right? This is Graham Goldsworthy. I, I kind of criticized him earlier, but I'll say he's really good about this. Moralism is, he's saying, hey, how many, you know, the Bible is a book about Jesus and about his salvation in him. And, but how many sermons end up saying, don't do this or do that, right? Do this, do that, do this, do that. That's moralism. Don't do this, do that, do this. Be like David, don't be like David. Be like this, don't be like that. And he's like, really, this misses in many times the, just the whole redemptive sweep of Scripture, which the authors are looking to, looking forward to Christ, that he is the one who will do it, and it is done, and we live in light of that. It's done, now live. And so rather than a Christocentric and a, a focus of the Scripture and t- looking to the Messiah, either the, looking forward to the Messiah coming or looking back to the Messiah is who came and we live in light of this or we look forward to this, rather than reading in light of those realities, it becomes a manual for do this and don't do that. And children's, again, we criticized yesterday at the Bible study teacher, but children's Bible study literature is horrible on this. Like it'll be like, be like this person in the Bible or don't be like this person in the Bible or be like this person. When oftentimes that character in the scripture is an illustration of God keeping his promise to his people or God working in spite of the sinfulness of people. You know, it was a huge revelation to our, our kids a few months ago when we tell them that David, <laughs> we didn't explain adultery to him, but we could, David killed someone, you know. And, and, and they're like, David killed someone? Because, you know, all the children's Bibles leave all that out, right? Because it's David is the hero and David is this. And you're like, well, David is not only an example of a man after God's own heart, but is an example of a man that God loved in spite of who he was, in spite of his sin, redeemed him in, in spite of himself. Um, and forgave him. Um, and kind of a, a, a key along with that is failing to preach the gospel in every sermon. And, and, and uh, you know, I feel like my thinking on this has actually improved since I've written, written the book. So I, and the, I'm going to do a revision of it, God willing, and hopefully this will come through more clearly. But, but one, it was one diagram we use at, at my, our church to teach, teach people in the membership class and I think we borrowed this from Tim Keller, so I'm not sure. But it says all of the Christian life, coming to Christ and then growing. You know, we're, the Reformation Day is coming up. Martin Luther, October 31st, Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Church Wittenberg. That was October 31st. And one of those theses was that the whole of Christian life is a life of faith and repentance. And we, we sometimes have missed it. We think, well, you, you repent, you believe, and then you move on to other things. But all of the Christian life is that living in that reality of repentance and faith. And, and, and what that means, right, is all of, we come to Christ, we recognize the, the separation between God's holiness and our sinfulness, right? And we realize that only Christ can bridge that gap. But then the growing in the Christian life is growing to understand the depth of our own sinfulness as we understand the depth of our, our sinfulness, of our motives and our you know, things we've been blind to. And we see in greater clarity the holiness of God. But that doesn't lead us to despair, but it, it magnifies the cross, right? You see the cross bigger because you're like, wow, Jesus, Jesus separates, he bridges the gap between my sin and God. And, and it's just growing, growing, growing. So that it's not that, it's not that, oh, I became a Christian. So now that when I preach and minister, I minister with pure motives and I'm a completely holy. It's like, I... I need to repent before I preach because I want people to like me because I'm, I'm, uh, my motives in preaching and teaching are, are not... Uh, I, but I need to remember God doesn't accept me because of my motives in preaching and teaching. God doesn't accept me because of my ministry. God accepts me because of Christ. And so Christ is magnified in that. So anytime we, we preach Scripture, it, it, as we seek the author's meaning, it, it, it draws out these fundamental realities about God's holiness, who God is, who we are, and it and it and it magnifies, and that's this 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 ties in with them. Um, this to me, this diagram is the most helpful in understanding gospel gospel centrality, because um, right now there's a movement. Have you noticed the movement with the, the the word gospel? It's real big right now, right? There's the gospel coalition. There's together for the gospel. There's the what is the gospel? People are all about the gospel. People are gospel centered. You know, it's the it's a buzzword, 
gospel is a slogan word. And in fact, a lot of people using the word are not doing anything differently or thinking any differently than they were. It's just like, I'm in now. I'm using gospel. We're all about the gospel. We're gospel center. We're gospel central. We're, we're, and it's like, I'm, I'm part of the in-group. But really, I think what, what the, at its best, what that is trying to convey is that, that repentance and faith are not just something exercised coming to Christ, but through the whole Christian life in this growing understanding of the, who God is and who we are and the sufficiency and beauty of Christ to bridge that gap. And it's how, how the sermon brings that home to the believer in, in a very real way each time. I think that's what gospel center preaching is. And to be honest, I feel like I've, I'm learning that from, from the, the main teaching pastor in our church who does it very well. Daniel Montgomery is very gifted in gospel-centered preaching and in, in bringing these fundamental realities to bear on each sermon. And so I'm learning it by contagion. I don't feel like I, I got it in any seminary training or any reading, but more through seeing it done. Uh, hearing it done well over and over, and so I still like I feel like I'm still learning, learning some of, some of that. Any questions or thoughts before we go to lunch? I don't know if I gave an exact quote, but but this I think this is his diagram. Luther, Luther quote about oh Luther all of the Christian life is is uh, faith and repentance. Yeah, all the whole the whole of the Christian life is an exercise of faith and repentance. So, in other words, that's just not something that's done once, or as he was battling the Catholic Church, it's not, you know, penance and this and that. But the, the Christian life is generally characterized by confessing our sin. And and uh, I had, ha, you know, I had a colleague who was, you know, I feel like a lot of people are trying to get a hold on this. They're like, "What is this? Tell me." He had written this piece, and he asked me about it, and. Uh, what, is the Christian, what does it mean to be gospel-centered as a parent? And I said, well, gospel-centered, we're talking about it, as a parent means um, that I recognize I mess up regularly as a parent. You know, I fail to... I, I, I become... I'm so selfish that I become mad and embittered that I can't do what I want to do and I have to take care of my children. You know, and I have, I have in me resentment for taking care of children who, who God has given to me. So... And I fail to adequately love them, and 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 so, and I do that. But when I when I come to that, I'm like, I don't despair. I'm not like, or I don't cover it up and be like, well, I'm doing the best I can, you know. That that just that just doesn't acknowledge sin. And I don't I don't say, um, uh, I don't despair. I'm like, well, oh my goodness, I failed. I might as well just die in a pit. I say, you know what? I have failed, and I, I'm seeing more clearly my sinfulness. I will never be accepted before God on my parenting. I'm glad in the final judgment I have Christ to stand before me, not my parent. I'm glad my parenting isn't going to be like, all right, now your parenting's the, the pivotal issue here. If you, did, if you get a passing grade on your parenting, you come into eternity. We're like, no, Christ, Christ is the basis of our righteousness. And so I'm freed from that to, 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 to not live in my failures, to see the beauty of Christ, and to, to move forward, ho- hopefully progressively transformed. Through, through repenting and admitting that.